as each uh, session goes on, I, I feel I'm getting more and more wrecked by God. <laughs> this is a slightly dangerous thing, but it's very nice. It's nice to be wrecked by God, isn't it? <laughs> you can either be wrecked by the world or you can be wrecked by God. Either way, you have to be wrecked. I know which is better. Uh, now, I have got um, the mother of all piles of books. Um, now, the reason I've got all these is I just want to recommend some resources that we've got in, particularly for this conference. They're not always available in bookshops because most of them are, uh, you buy them online, but from Mike Breen and the guys, the 3DM guys in Sheffield. Um, if I just run through some of the titles, Building a Discipling Culture. Uh, and then there's a, a huddle leader guide to go with that. Uh, just to comment on those two, particularly, um, I really believe uh, that as, uh, as leaders, if, we're, if you're more inclined to be strategic in nature, then you actually become a better leader by learning to become more organic. If you're more organic as a leader, then you actually become a better leader by learning to be more strategic. And one of the key things I'm finding, because I tend to be more of a sort of an organic person to see what happens, is if we are really going to disciple thousands of people, not only in knowing Jesus, but then having lives more and more that reflect his likeness, then discipleship's got to become really something we give attention to. And I'm so serious about it. I signed up for a whole year to be in one of their leadership huddles, with a few other folk who are leading um, in situations similar to mine. I've just come to the end of that year, and I was just learning how to use the tools that they use in discipleship. And from September, I've just asked 12 people if they will be in a, an online huddle with me for a year. And the deal is that if they do it for a year, they've then got to pick 12 more people and do the same thing. Uh, it's not a technique. It's just simple tools that help us just kind of put wheels on things. And I kind of feel that perhaps more and more of our churches and our leadership um, settings, we will be very intentional about discipleship. It's not complicated. It's just finding a little framework to help us. So Building a Discipling Culture is a really helpful book just to introduce you to some of the, what they call life shapes that they just use as little tools. I found it really helpful. And I'm going to give it a go in September with some guinea pigs <laughs> and see how it goes. Uh, but I think you'll find that stimulating to read. Even if you do something different from this, it's not that we, you know, this is the, the only thing. But I found this really helpful. So um, you can have a read of that. Uh, Leading Kingdom Movements by Mike Breen. Again, I found this very helpful because I, I really do believe that within our DNA, God wants us not so much to be an organization but more movemental in the future, and not so much centralized, but decentralizing where we can. Finding our sweet spot, where that we, the things we can do best together, we do together. The things where we can uh, kind of release one another into fruitfulness uh, for extension, we do that. So leading kingdom movements, really helpful, provoking um, thoughts to, to just, yeah, just be stirring you, whether you're in, in the marketplace of uh, leadership or in church life. Covenant and kingdom. Uh, really, really helpful. Again, just looking at the whole thing of relationship and responsibility, uh, how those two things come together. Uh, again, fascinating book. And then um, one that is really is, that's a big book, um, Launching Missional Communities. Missional communities have been really helpful in many situations. There's lots of ways we can uh, create wineskins for local church and different things will suit different situations, whether it's multi-site, church planting, missional communities. This has just been launched 
in terms of a resource book. So if you're ex- exploring the whole thing of missional communities, I want to know kind of what that is. We've got a few of those, so you might like to, to grab them. But I, I've really come to love and respect um, the guys at 3DM, and, and um, I've got to know Paul McConaughey, who leads the church there in Sheffield, a church which has grown to now 3,500 people. Uh, in Sheffield, you know, largest church in the north of England, and all of it's done on the missional community mo- discipleship model, and I've just learned a lot just from listening to them. Very, very, uh, I kind of just feel at home listening to their, their kind of style, so I just want to recommend it to some of you to, to perhaps kind of um, feed your um, imagination with that, and it's got lots of overlaps for local church and for leadership in in the marketplace of life. In this, uh, this uh, second session I'm doing, I'm calling it Land Takers Part 2. Uh, you'll notice it says Land Takers Part 3 tonight. That's really just a nice way of saying it's a prayer meeting. Um, so we're, we're, we're going to do, do some experiments tonight, um, and we're going to have some fun. So in this session, I just wanted to come back to the verses we looked at before and look at a, a second part to it. Um, this journey that uh, the people of Israel went on. So if you'd like to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1, again, verses 6 to 18, I'll just read those through again. They should come up on the screen, I hope. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, you've stayed long enough at this mountain, turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negeb and by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon as far as the great river, the great, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to give them and their, to, sorry, to give to them and their offspring after them. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you've spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, the commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with you. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Father, I pray as we look together at this passage again, I pray for fresh eyes to see things that were familiar and necessary to the journey that your people undertook at that time. Lord, your word says that the things written in the Old Testament are for our encouragement, our strengthening, our warning, and our um, strengthening. And I pray that we will just learn from what happened to these people, and we will apply it into our lives for your glory. I pray you'd be with us this afternoon just as we hone in on what what kind of people you want us to be for this journey. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the, the kind of angle I want to take this afternoon is, is quite, sim- it's quite a simple one, really. 
we, we can have the best strategy in the world, and um, hopefully, whether you're leading in local church life, or whether you're leading in local church and the marketplace, which I believe is going to be happening more and more and more, bivocational, particularly church planting, there's going to be lots of overlap and strands where we have to learn to be multidisciplined in the way we lead. Whether you're leading in education, whether you're leading in the health service, whether you're in local politics, whether you're a businessman or a businesswoman, whether you are involved in your local community, whatever you are leading, you can have the best strategy for the kingdom of God to advance. You can have uh, thought it through. You can even have a direct prophetic word from God, as we were hearing this morning. And I loved so much what Edward was saying. It's just so where we are as a family. We love the prophetic. The church is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. That's talking about how God builds now. I loved it so much. But you know what? You can even have a prophetic word that's absolutely from heaven. You can have the best strategy. You can know what God wants you to do. But if we're not the right kind of people it will fall flat. Who we are as people really, really does matter. It's quite sobering. It's sobering to me that God has entrusted me with something, and He's entrusted you with something. I, if I was God, I would be nervous. But He has entrusted us to be His ambassadors and to do things for Him. Things in this room We've all been called into a field that's been assigned to us, and God has entrusted us to carry out His purposes, to be His ambassadors, to be His representatives. There's something of a, there's a weight, actually, that comes with that. There's the beauty of the relationship we've been enjoying in the worship, but there is a responsibility that comes with it. Relationship and responsibility actually are the essence of our love for God. It's not just hearing His words, it's doing them. It's knowing not just what pleases Him, but then being the kind of people that follow it through and, and go the distance. I want us to be people, I want to be someone who goes the distance, so that whatever God says to me, I follow through. I, 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 that there's something about me that doesn't fail to fulfill what the Lord's called me to do. You, you want to be like that? Just... Some of you do. Do you want to be like that? Come on, talk to me. It's the afternoon. You're falling asleep. Right? This, is, this, is, this is key. And there's a few things that I find in this passage that I, I just kind of felt highlighted to me. What kind of leaders does God want who are going to take this new part of the journey? You've been on this mountain long enough turn and take your journey. What kind of leaders is God looking for in the kingdom, in the marketplace, in the church? What's He looking for? What are the qualities? What's the, what's the thing He's looking at our hearts about now? Well, I've just listed a few. And some of these are kind of values that I believe as a family of churches will become more and more pronounced among us. Uh, values are caught as much as taught, they're, they're lived out, they're incarnated. That's one of the reasons why, though I'm very thankful for the, the vision, the, the values booklet that New Frontiers has done summarizing things, because it's quite helpful just to look at the history of our journey. You know, values, we are living letters. 
The Bible said that we're living epistles. God's written on us. People should look at our lives and see our values. If someone says to you, what are your values? You should be able to say, well, look at me. (laughs) You know, look at how I live. Uh, Values are not, it's not a a list. It's, you live it. It's just who you are. It's, It's things that have become precious to you. It's things you do almost intuitively and instinctively and sometimes your values are so instinctive and intuitive you can't really tell what they are because they're just a part of how we do things here and they they're like a nice wine they take a few years to ferment and you can try and uncork it quickly and you know drink it and you think well it's not cheap plonk you know values values take time Uh, building us as leaders into people God can really use, that takes time. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a process. It's, uh, I love what Edward said this morning about not rush. You don't rush in just because God's spoken. Take time. Think. Allow God to shape us. And so what are some of these? Number one, leaders who love team. Leaders who love team. In verse 15, we notice that Moses said, um, I took uh, men and appointed them. So I took, heads of, sorry, I took heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. I took men, set them as heads over you. God's plan to take the land in Moses' time, involved multiplied deployment of gifted people working together. It was never intended to be a one-man band just about Moses. In actual fact, Moses not only was reluctant the first time God called him, but he's even more, his reluctance revisits him again now, and he says, I can't bear all this. This is too much. How am I supposed to do all this? And Moses, rather than saying, you know, right, pull yourself together, you can handle it. No, he, he plays it smart, and he thinks, no, there's too much here for one man. I, I need team. It was, it was a value. When Moses was squeezed, the value of team came out. It pointed different people according to their anointing, their gifting, finding the right people for the right place. The right, that's part of leadership, finding who's got the grace gift for that 10 or that 100 or that 50 or that 1,000, knowing, knowing how to appoint and, and, and allocate and distribute the grace gifts in the body of Christ. That's, that's what leadership's all about. It's never, ever about a one man or one woman, but never it's never about that. Leadership is to create the guidelines and then release people. Leadership is almost, the, Paul said that us apostles are at the end of the queue. We're almost like the refuse of the world. Why was he saying that? He was saying the job of apostolic ministry, even more so, is not hierarchical to sit on top of some organization and have a big profile. It's actually to get behind everybody else and make sure everybody's in the right place doing what God's called them to do. It's team, it's, it's releasing team, it's, it's, it's delighting in the environment that you can create so that everybody thrives. If you're in any position of leadership in the workplace or a church, your number one driving motivation must be looking at the people around you and thinking, are they thriving? Because if they're not, I'm responsible. You can't, you know, not for them personally, but to make sure there's nothing hindering them from thriving. Team is huge. 
Now, team is not a word you'll find in the Bible. It's difficult. It's not in the Bible. But it is a dynamic that's visible in the Bible. It's there all over the place. Team also in Scripture is static. It's not static it's, it, or fixed. It's, it's relational. It's functional. It's fluid. It's, it's very relational. You find Paul writing to my dear friends, brothers and sisters. These are not colleagues. These are not appointments. These are friends doing things together whose hearts have been forged together through having a common mission. That's why we've called ourselves relational mission. There is a clue in the name. Now, it gets more and more complicated as we get bigger and bigger. And you think, how do you keep that DNA? Well, the only way you keep it is through team. It's through team who all carry the same DNA. And wherever we find ourselves expressing our mission, there's relationship and there's mission. It's happening in team all the way. It's like you can't cut it anywhere without finding that. Right throughout Scripture, I'm convinced this is the way to function. David had his mighty men who were forged together, heart and soul. Jesus had his, his three, his 12, his 72, and he even sent two to fetch a donkey. So, so ingrained is multiplication and, and plurality. Even in Jesus, they, perhaps one of, he was unsure whether one of them knew what a donkey looked like. So send a backup just in case. Or perhaps the donkey was a bit stronger than one person, so you need two to pull it. Yeah, I don't know why, but he sent two, two people. Paul went through an open door and he said, but I didn't find Titus there, so I left the open door uh, and went somewhere else. Team overrode the opportunity. Think about that. When we plant into places, we have to carefully think. I'm not saying it's always like this, because sometimes it's right, someone just goes and parachutes in and then a team is created. But Paul's kind of default was, is there a team in place for this to function as team? Because otherwise I'll just hold back a bit until we're ready to go. His team is, is there in the way he does it. Eldership in the, in the New Testament is always plural. To Titus, stay there in Crete, appoint elders. It's plural. It's a plurality. Churches are led by a plurality of gifted, God-anointed people. It's always plural. It is not a leader with a team. It's a team with a leader. It's plural. Paul, if you read Romans 16, this beautiful chapter is just a list of his incredible team that were coming and going, men and women, and I, I want to make that really clear, that, that we don't have a map, we have a compass, and as we go forward, listen, more and more men and women are going to be pioneering things for us in a way we've never seen before. Right? There's something coming and changing in the way we do things, we've we're we're still got the compass, but the map looks different. And when you read Paul in, in Romans 16, his thank list, as it were, about the people who labored hard with him, men and women were, were, were mentioned equally to him in terms of people who really cut pioneering swathes through the undergrowth. We've got to find new ways to release men and women. It's team. Just speaking personally, even about my own personal life, I never make major decisions in my personal life without consulting with people who I trust. Never. Never have done. I take responsibility for the decisions I make, 
but they are always, always informed decisions. Why? Because I believe in team, even in the way I do my own personal life. To me, there's wisdom in many counselors. That's why we've been given one another, and we are in the body of Christ so that we do live in a kind of a, a plurality of, of, of counsel in everything. In the West, that's very countercultural, but it is the culture of heaven. We, are not, we may live in an individualistic society in the West. That is, that is, that is a stronghold. An Englishman's home is not his castle. Where, where, where is that? In here. <laughs> Sharing life, team, just... I wasn't going to say this, but I will say it. And I hope you understand why, why I'm going to say this. About 12, 13 years ago when we moved house, I felt God say to me, one of the things about moving house was to show me that he could do something I didn't think he could do, and he did, which is wonderful. But I felt him also say to me, I want you to, uh, I want you to have people live with you. And we'd never done that before, and so Sue and I would talk about it, and we felt faith for it, and every, all those 12, 13 years, we've always had someone living in our home with us, just to share our life with. I tell you, as an Englishman, that does you good. <laughs> does you good. Don't know if it does them any good, it does me good. <laughs> and you need enough space, but the point is, there's something I wanted to address in my own heart about sharing my life a bit more. Do you understand what that means? What I mean by that? Now, you think, what's that got to do with team? It, it just permeates thing about, I don't know, being in a plural context all the time, just somehow. That doesn't mean we can't have solitude. Even Jesus went out and took himself. It's all right, Steph. You can, you know, you're okay. I'm a bit. <laughs> I'm a bit like uh, oh, Steph's mug. You know, if you had my mug, that's enough social interaction for the day. I'm a bit like that. I like to get away and think and bit. And that's okay. It's not. It isn't wrong. But if it's like anything, if you just live in one context all the time, that's you know, it's imbalanced. So team. Paul, um, Moses said here, I'm not able to bear you by myself. You know, it's a wise and a self-aware leader who recognizes we are only human. You know, <laughs> there is only one savior and it's not you. You know, and yet we, we try, I, I'll, fi I will fix that, I'll, de I'll deal with that. I'll de Moses, wise man, I am not able to bear you by myself. Is that weakness? That's very good leadership knowing what your capacity is, staffing your weaknesses. Do you do that? Do you know what your weaknesses are as a leader? Because if you don't, they, they, the enemy does, <laughs> and he'll exploit them. So you find your weakness, staff them. Find people who can do what you can't do better than your attempts to do it. That's not weakness, that's playing smart. That's finding your sweet spot. We need team because we've all got blind spots. And if we, I have blind spots. I know you find that difficult to believe. My wife can tell you all about my blind spots. There's, I have many blind spots. And the problem is when I disciple people, guess what I will do? I will disciple them into my blind spots. As well as the things that are good that I can put, them, put into their life, I will also put the things in that I'm still struggling with and I won't even realize I'm doing it. Which is why we need one another. To, to balance each other out. As we, I believe, spread out more and more, 
into different nations, um, it's going to become really important that as the distances get stretched, I, I just so commend the guys <laughs> from Canada. I mean, uh, they're incredible. I mean, just to think, right, we have a problem here. Uh, it's called 5,000 miles distance. Uh, how are we going to be relational? How are we going to make this work? Our cluster, <laughs> our geographic cluster covers from London to Moscow, equivalent. How are we going to do that? And they've thought, we will make it work over technology. We will make it work. I mean, bless them, they even show, one, uh, Kevin, I think it is, shows one of my little coffee break things every Sunday, just so that his people who probably never met me, and may, some of them may never even meet me, I don't know, they just get some little snippet of just a little bit of teaching. I think, well done. Because it's like finding a way to make the the family connect over distances. You know, if you've got relatives who you love who are living on the other side of the world, you do find a way. You do find a way. Maybe not as often or as frequently as you'd like, but there is a way to keep family together over years. And Dwayne, okay. Well done, <laughs> Dwayne. I knew someone was doing it. And the key thing about, um, I, I, I've re read a little bit of, of, of military history. I, I, I don't read a lot about it, but just, I just like to see how did, how did people who conducted military campaigns manage to, to um, keep things you know, together over distances. And I, a couple of things particularly struck me. One is, uh, forgive this British analogy, and I apologize to anybody that we defeated in the course of these <laughs> battles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but Lord Nelson um, had, had this system where different boats in the fleet would be perhaps a long way from each other as the, as the fleet sailed. But what he would do is this. He, would, he had what he called Nelson's Table. And it was his, his living quarters. And there was a big dining table. And in the evenings, he would invite his senior officers and his young emerging generals, or captain, or whatever they're called in the Navy, I don't know what they're called, but anyway, the young guys coming through. They would all sit around the table, and he would have what he called harnessed thinking time. Anyone was allowed to say anything, to explore ideas, question decisions, you know, pull things around, to share heart. There was no right or wrong answers, and he had this, this motto. Um, or what, what he did was this, when, when they all went back to their ships, they'd, bit, they'd spent so much time together l understanding how each other ticked and how they made decisions and what influenced their decisions that when they were separated from each other by many nautical miles, they knew they would all make the same instinctive decisions. Why? Because they'd spend a lot of time around the dinner table, just like Jesus with his disciples. I think about this. It's really important. Team is not fashioned in a classroom. It's fashioned mostly around a dinner table. I'm so glad that we belong to a movement that eats a lot. <laughs> <laughs> because as the lines get spread out, it's those times you've had together around the dinner table that really shape you. And his motto was this. His, his, his um, philosophy was this. When they went out from that room... If they made a decision in the battle and they won a victory, 
The next time they all gathered together, everybody would applaud the person who had won that victory. If they'd attempted something and they'd lost, he never singled out one person and said, that's your fault. He said, we have suffered a setback and we will sort it out together. I think that's the essence of team. We're in it together. And what happens if you create that culture is people are not afraid to have a go and fail. They don't become afraid of failure because failure is actually a positive. That's how you learn. Um, success is a series of failures made good, really. It's how you learn to walk, a succession of tripping over. <laughs> if we'd never done that, many of us would be carried in this morning <laughs> because we'd never taken the risk. So team is going to become more and more important to us as a family going forward. We don't do anything in isolation. We don't do anything on our own. We don't run off and build our own empire. We are in this together. We're in it for each other, and we're in it for the Lord's glory. Team, team, team. Whether you're setting up a business, whether you're in education, whether you're in health, whether you're in local church, you can always find a way to make team work where you are. And if you haven't got a team, pray for one before you do something. Find some common-hearted people who will share the burden with you. People who you... I remember someone gave me a very helpful prophecy before Relational Mission was launched, and he said this to me. He said, uh, when you gather people to you, you know, overlap, teams of teams, he talked about overlapping, so there'll be teams of teams. You're not going to just need one team, it's going to be a team of teams. He said, make sure you pick people that energize you and don't drain you. Now, that might sound a little bit selfish, but I tell you, it makes a heck of a lot of difference when you're doing stuff to think, can't, does this person energize me? It doesn't mean they have to be like me. It just means that there has to be chemistry that you think, do you know what, even though I really don't get you sometimes and you don't get me sometimes, I absolutely love you and I feel energized by you. It's very energizing to have someone who's completely different from you. That's good. But there are some people that just, not, you know, they may be right in another team, but it just doesn't, just not quite clicking. And, and this kind of chemistry, this energy, this... this you know, there's been times when I, when, I, when I get sort of weighed down by, by things. I want to talk to friends who are carrying the weight of it with me, because guess what? They lift me up. No one can survive on their own. Team is, where we are going, team is vital. If you're fighting a big battle, you want to know you've got your comrades around you, your, your, your brothers in arms around you who are going to fight with you. Some of the stories of greatest bonds have taken place on the battlefield where when you talk to uh, perhaps men who fought alongside one another at risk of life, they knew that the, their colleagues, their, 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 their fellow soldiers, would have laid down their lives for each other. They know that. And you build a relationship that... that is stronger than almost anything else. Team really matters. Second thing, what kind of leaders does God want us does God want for this next journey is this. Leaders of stature. Leaders of stature. Look again in verse 15. Um, so I took the heads of your tribes, look at this. Wise and experienced. Wise and experienced. Some versions say wise 
understanding uh, and experienced. And then in verse 16, people who judge uh, righteously, who, who are not partial in judgment. You know, to make a wise call in leadership is just huge. Wisdom is not the same as knowledge. We can know what to do, but wisdom shows you how to do it. <laughs> Sometimes a man or woman with a lot of knowledge and a little wisdom is more dangerous than someone with no knowledge. You know, wisdom is, I mean, Proverbs even, even says, above all, get wisdom. Just, just dwell on that for a minute. In, in, in terms of leadership, above everything else you could seek, get wisdom. That's why God commended Solomon. He said, ask me for what you want. And Solomon said, I want wisdom to rule well. Because of that, God blessed him not only with that, but with all the other things he could have asked for. Wisdom's huge. Stature. Men and women who are wise, understanding, and experienced in handling the stuff of leadership. Now, I know this is an afternoon. You think, oh, can't we have something a bit lighter? Well, this is a leadership conference. It doesn't get lighter. It, 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 this, is, this is the stuff of life. And, and, and if you ask me the question, okay, how do we become wise, understanding, and experienced? Would you like to know how you become wise, understanding, and experienced? I will tell you. Pain, difficulty, setback, discouragement, and hard knocks. You can leave now if you want. I'm just telling you like it is. I've been in ministry 30 years-ish. I, I know I don't look that old, right, but I have. What God, God in his providence and his mercy allows us to go through situations of challenge, difficulty, perplexity in leadership, decision-making pressures, things that stretch us, relational conflict, things where we have to correct things, change things, take risks, where people speak against us, where we, we get personal attacks from the enemy, who, or lack, uh, draining of confidence completely. You name it, it happens to us. And what it is, is, is it, it's, it's our father disciplining, disciplining us as children and training us to be men and women who can carry weight. You know, someone who can carry weight, give, give me men and women who can carry weight. And I tell you, you, you can get through just about anything. People whose shoulders have been built up by the, 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 the carrying of things for God through many dangers, toils, and snares, as the hymn says. And it builds into us wisdom, understanding, and experience. It knocks out of us the looking for the quick fix. There is no quick fix in Christian leadership. I mean, sometimes... How can I put this? We want God to break in sovereignly, immediately, and, and, and sort something out. And often he does for the glory of, and the extension of his kingdom. Kingdom breaks in. But sometimes God's way 
of his kingdom advancing is allowing us to have to push through by just trusting God through the battle. Remember the next chapter, it says, little by little you will take this land until you have increased enough. So leader, you know, if you are in a situation where you're under pressure, you might have even thought twice about coming to this because you're under pressure in the workplace, you're in a a school that's in special measures, you're on a hospital ward where, where you're understaffed, you're under-resourced, everybody's pointing at you because the buck stops with you, you're in a, a college or a factory or a workplace where it's utter demoralization, productivity's down, redundancies are facing people, you're in a local church where you're planting, you've gone to a pioneering nation and you've got four people saved very quickly and three of them have backslidden. I tell you, wise, experienced men and women of understanding, you can't come to the front and have hands laid on you for that. If only you could. I mean, if only there was a ministry of impartation of wisdom, understanding, and experience. If only there was, I'd be first in the queue. But the, most of the things I've learned that are of any value whatsoever in leadership have come painfully, but have been redemptively applied. So I can honest, honestly, with all my heart, stand here today and say, I praise God for everything He's allowed to pass through my life. Painful or blessing. Joyful or sorrowful, I praise God that when I look back, I see incredible fatherly brilliance in the way he's just put his hands on the clay of my life and shaped and is shaping it so I can only sometimes, like we were singing, just fall on my feet and say, fall at his feet and say, I just worship you. I, I, and when you're in it, and it just feels like all hell's been let loose at you. It feels like everything you've done in obedience has gone belly up. You think, where are you, God? Those are your moments when you become a captain of a thousand. Those are the times when men and women are made who can have global impact. We talk about reaching the nations. You can't reach the nations unless God's reached into you first and done, a, done some work. So that it hurts, folks. It hurts. Look at Joseph. A global vision. Right, go down that hole for a while. Be misunderstood for a while. Be rejected for a while. Get in that prison for a while. What? But God, what men meant for harm, God turned for good. And even at the end, there's such a work been done in Joseph's life, he's able to forgive those and bless those that have done it to him. So huge is the stature of this man. Now, you don't get that by coming to the front and having hands laid on you. I'm sorry, you don't. You get it by... Trusting God through his dealings with you. I genuinely believe God has called us to play our part in a global way. I don't say that 
lightly and sometimes I wish I didn't have to say it because I'd just be happy sitting in my garden with a cup of coffee. Seriously. I, I, me and Jesus, I just, it's great. I just wait for him to return and just, you know, do, I'm quite happy, really. I mean, I, I don't need, you know, I really know. Please, <laughs> have mercy. <laughs> Lord, have mercy. It's not my idea. I don't even know how to explain this, but when I was young and I got a real sense of call, I was saying, let me out, come on. Now, that's good. Now I'm thinking, oh, Lord, really? (laughs) You know, because you say, I'll do it. It's not because I'm old or worn out, though that is a factor. (laughs) It's because God just takes you through stuff. And he'll just do it until it's not about you, it's about him. And you say, because you say, I'll do it. That's what he's after. So when you go back into the ward on Monday and you take a deep breath in the hospital car park and you think, dear Lord and Father of mankind, (laughs) the 12-hour shift lies before you and you think, this is not fun. But you are his ambassador. And he's looking for wise understanding and experienced men and women who will take the, the weight in a broken world and will say, well, if not you, then me. Who will say, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. That's, that's what this conference is all about. So when you're planting your church in the Siberian Peninsula, (laughs) don't you laugh, (laughs) surrounded by yaks and polar bears, that's Canada, yeah, well, they migrate, (laughs) you know, and you're Oh, what's that place in Canada? tuk I've always fancied planting a church in tuk tuk Yeah, because I, I just like the name. <laughs> but it's surrounded by... Is, is Inuits? Come on, someone. Yeah, well, there we go. We've got some volunteers. If Jesus shall reign wherever the sun doth its successive journeys run. Now, I know you say it doesn't, the sun doesn't come up there in the winter. Figuratively, it does, right? Jesus wants a church even in Taktayaktak, right, with the Inuits. Someone has to pay the price and do that if God calls them to do it. And that isn't Hawaii. Yeah. I've been to Hawaii. That was a blast. Man, that was a blast. I've not been yet to Tuk Tuk. Tim Keller says, there's no way to know who you really are unless you're tested. <laughs> oh, why did he say that? That's not listen. <laughs> there's no way to learn how to trust in God until you're drowning. Moving on. <laughs> These kinds of leaders don't often look like Superman or Superwoman. Paul was able to say... 
when he was wrestling with God, his weaknesses, his thorns in the flesh, whatever they were, he said, Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. So he'd, he'd learnt by then. And then this is Paul who people said of him, 2 Corinthians 10, some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive. And his speaking amounts to nothing. I, mean, I don't want to hear that after I've finished, right, really? <laughs> yeah, it's great, Mike. It didn't, really, it didn't amount to anything, but, you know, and you're not very impressive. You can write a bit, you know. The thing is, Paul wasn't having to be a superman. He just knew that in, in the capacities he'd got, he knew that because God had given him a promise, the gates of hell couldn't stop it. So you might face all sorts of weaknesses and, you know, lack of capacity in your situation, whatever you're doing. You think, you know, if I was like this, I could do this. Well, if you were like this, you wouldn't need a savior. That's actually the whole point of the gospel. <laughs> you can't do it. If you're in church leadership and you think, I'm pretty sure we can do this. No, really no. Really no. No, no, no. Hmm. The reason we need people of wisdom, experience, stature is this. Let me just tell you some of the things on my in-tray. Right? Because they're not my problems, they're our problems. Let me... <laughs> right. Let me, just, let me just tell you some of the things we've got to find solutions for. All right. How do we plant churches and engage people in prayer more? How do we create economic engines so that every church plant is self-sustaining and so that people don't run out of money? How do we build a team of teams so it's not just one apostolic team but layers and circles of teams so that there's supply lines going to every church so that everybody is supplied with Ephesians 4 ministries in a cohesive, coordinated way so that nothing is ever missed and everybody gets all that they need in order to mature and come to the full unity and stature of the measure of Christ? How do we do that? How do we, how do we uh, find financial uh, measures so that the huge sums of money that we will need never run out? How do we find in our local churches new models and wineskins of fruitfulness, multi-site, missional communities, church planting, uh, discipleship huddles? How do we do that? What is the answer to that? What works best in every situation? How do we resource and develop buildings as resources for the local community and for the nations? How do we develop discipleship models in a Western culture that are sustainable, simple, and reproducible? How do we become more evangelistically fruitful in words, works, and wonders in a changing paradigm in society where more and more people don't know anything about Jesus? How do we engage with the wider community? How do we engage with government and statutory bodies who don't tend to say very nice things to us publicly and at the front door, but who invite us round the back door and welcome us in and say, please don't stop doing what you're doing? <laughs> That's how it is. And bless them, they have no choice. How do, you, how do you work with that? How do you do that? How do we engage men and women jointly in new paradigms of leadership and, and team so that women are sought for their contribution and men are harnessed in their, the pressures of the, the things that they're trying to, 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 to grow in? How, how do we do that? How do we develop cross-cultural partnerships 
in different parts of the world? How do we uh, work together with Edward and John Peepy? And uh, we're going to Skype in Pete Brooks in Australia tonight and pray for him. I mean, that's, that's cool. He's going he's to have to get up really early. <laughs> well, how, how do we how do, you do that? I don't know how to do it. How do we work with the poor? How do we empower people? How do we affect education in this country and reach children who don't even know the basic things about God from church or from their school or from their parents? They have zero. How do, we, how do you reach people who don't know anything? How do we create, here's a good one, pathways in the health profession whereby people's spiritual needs as well as their physical needs are taken seriously? I, you know, I would love to see partnerships between church and NHS where we can wisely, with understanding and experience, offer to pray for people in partnerships with the medical profession. I would love to see, tomorrow morning, we're go, uh, Sue and I are going to interview a dear friend of ours who's worked in the mental health um, uh, sector for 25 years. She's not a Christian but she wants to come here and tell us and ask the church to get stuck in to help. I think that's amazing. And I just long to see more and more of that kind of partnership happening. Men and women of peace and how to work with them when they don't even as yet know Christ. That's my entry. That keep me busy till next Wednesday. <laughs> And do you know the answer to any of those things? I have no idea. But wisdom, experience, we'll find the answer. You know, I don't know the answer to those questions, but I do know this. Within this room, the answers to all that are here. Because some of you do know the answers to that. <clears throat> and what I need to do is get you to tell me the answers and then present them and make myself look really clever. That wasn't serious, right, don't worry. <laughs> what other kind of thing, what kind of leaders does God want us to be? All right, here's the next one. Leaders who know how to handle issues of increase. <clears throat> In verse 11 it says, May the Lord make you as thousand times as many as you are. Well, that's nice. Um, but if your church, your business, your project for God, the, the field he's assigned for you, suddenly, or even gradually, became a thousand times more fruitful than it presently is, how would you cope? Just a thousand times, that's a big prayer, a thousand times. <laughs> Imagine a thousand times increase on your congregation in the next five years. May the Lord make you a thousand times more than you are. <laughs> you've got to know how to handle it when it happens. Uh, one of the things that's, you know, really affected me about just talking to Richard and Andy about how they've handled revival is this whole thing of, you've got to be able to handle increase when it comes. You've got to, there's got to be something within you that knows how to, how to handle it. Do you know what? Um, increase produces change. So when change happens... We all get vulnerable because we think, what's in it for me? Where do I fit now? 
I knew where I fit, now I don't know where I fit. The team's changed, the whole game's changed. I don't know where I fit anymore. Personal insecurity, gotta be able to handle personal insecurity in a time of increase. So we don't hold on to position. That's very important when a second generation start to come through and you think, well, I've been doing this, I've been an evangelist all these years, or I'm a cluster leader or I'm a church leader, and suddenly some bright young thing with the anointing of the Spirit comes through and you have to find your new position in a season of increase. That's, that tests the metal. That tests the metal. Increase produces chaos, muddle, and complaints. Yay! Let's hear it for complaints. Yay! How many people love complaints? Yeah, I love complaints. Complaints are good. What? No, complaints are good. Why? Because they show something's happening. Complaints, in Acts 6, a complaint arose. Why? Because the church was growing. It's good if a complaint is arising because something's happening. It's not a bad thing. If I asked you, this is where we need to work at it together, if I asked you to write down on a piece of paper, please don't do it, and please don't tweet it, five things that's wrong with relational mission. <laughs> you would, <laughs> just, I'm limiting you to five, all right, for the sake of <clears throat> my own self-esteem. Um, you would probably all be correct. But do you know what help that is? None. Unless you're prepared to say, and do you know what? I'll help you fix it. Because it's not your problem, it's our problem. We need to create a culture where instead of they need to do something about this, it's we need to do something about this. So that they become we. See, challenges of increase are not a sign that you're getting it wrong. It's actually a sign that God's helping you manage extra fruitfulness. It's good. An apostolic environment is always incomplete, messy, slightly dysfunctional, like me, open to easy critique, vulnerable, overstretched, work in progress. And if you're a straight-line kind of person who doesn't like the word ambiguity, you're going to find an apostolic environment challenging. Not impossible, but challenging. And let me tell you, give you a little insight. I'm not that kind of a person. I like it all sorted out. But God's done a number on me. <laughs> and do you know what? I quite like chaos now. I really do. I quite, I'm quite energized by it. You see, increase, you've got to pace yourself. I was listening... <clears throat> Now, this is an interesting one. Uh, Linford Christie. How many have heard of Linford Christie? Yeah, he was, uh, uh, was at one point the world's fastest man, 100-meter um, record holder. He was on a gardening program. Well, no, seriously. He likes gardening. He was on a gardening program. And they were talking to him about the, 
the similarity between gardening and running. Stick with me, right? Because that's what I thought. I thought, really, why have you got an athlete on a gardening program? Is something gone wrong? And he said this. He said, um, both gardening and running a race require the same ingredient, patience. He said, there is a rhythm to running a race. He said this, fastest man in the world, 100 meters. He said, if you try to rush, you won't run as fast as you could. He said, let one leg follow the other. <clears throat> Don't try and bring it through before the other one's finished. He said the same with the arms. Let one arm follow the other. Wait for it. Learn to wait for it. Then you will run faster than you ever thought possible. And I felt God speak to me. I was listening to this on the television. I thought, that's a man who knows how to run. And when increase comes, we can try and sort of, you know, rush at it or even rush to try and get increase. There's a rhythm that we have. If we want to be world record holders, there's a rhythm to running. There's a rhythm to it. A few more things. Are you still with me? Yeah. Right, good. A few more things. What kind of leaders does God want in this new journey? Leaders who share common values. Now, for the sake of... Um, um, the fact it's the afternoon and I want to keep you awake. I have in my hand a tuning fork. Right now, I don't know. Can I have a microphone there? Just one other, if you can put it on for me. Now, you see, thank you. This might go horribly wrong. Um, see, apostolic ministry and leadership in any, in any environment is not about being a solo trumpet player, blowing your own trumpet. It's about being a conductor of an orchestra. Because what you're trying to do is to bring out all the beautiful sounds of the various instruments that are in front of you. And the conductor doesn't actually, ver actually make any noise whatsoever. It's the instruments that make the noise. All he does, or she does, is try to help people come in at the right moment. Even the person with the triangle. Now, can you hear that? No. Got it? Now, when, when you get the note, whoops, I was trying a minute. When you get the note, I want you to start humming it, right? Very just gently, all right? Ready? Very nice. Keep going. Take breath, otherwise you'll pass out. Right? <laughs> Breathe. Now, isn't that when you have one? Keep going. This is going to take some time. Right? <laughs> when you get one note, there's a harmony. Yeah. Values create harmony. Keep going. Some of you think, I can't keep going, I can't keep going. Yes, you can. Breathe in diaphragm. Just, you know, values, when they are held by everybody, beautiful. Now, this is where the fun starts. I'm going to enjoy this bit. You can have the microphone back now because I don't need that anymore. Keep, keep doing it. All right. Now, <clears throat> I always want to do this. Now, uh, keep going. Now, what we start to find is 
with a little bit of conducting, values can get louder. Whoa, this is fun. And then they can get a little softer. Oh, isn't that beautiful? And then louder again. Wow. And then what you can do is get people who know how to do scales and arpeggios. So now this is your freestyle moment, all right? <laughs> so come on, let's have some freestyle. Get louder, louder, a bit of freestyle. Some of you can do scales, arpeggios, harmonies. Let's hear some sopranos, some bass. Where did that come from? That's incredible. Yeah, some bass, some, some, uh, some soprano. Keep going, keep going. Oh, you hear all those little tones in there? Keep going, keep going, keep going. Now, loud this side. And right across. Loud, 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 loud. And back again. Keep going, keep going. Back. Loud, 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 loud. This is fantastic. Oh, wasn't that beautiful? See? <laughs> Now, whenever I think about leadership, I think that. Now, just imagine, pictorially, right around the globe, wherever God assigns our field, that sound is recognizable. Why? Because the values have a certain note to them. And we all learn the note it's not robotic, it's not saying all clones, it's saying we use our own you know, range and skills and baritone and soprano, and ba we all fit into and express the values in our own personality, our own context, our own field, but it sounds the same. Values that have been worked at and become precious and you're willing to give your life for. We carry with us values from the last 30 years of New Frontiers working together, and we don't want to lose those values, but we want to find even more new ones and different ways of expressing the ones that have become precious to us. That's actually the journey we're about to go on. It's about values, not just doctrine. Values sometimes are the way you do things, not just what you believe. Hmm. So, I'll give you an example of a, a value that I really liked. Um, Penny Taylor, uh, some of you who were at the um, leadership weekend uh, last November, um, I read out this prophetic word she had about seeing relational mission like a, a ship that had come into harbor at Norwich where we were meeting uh, here. And uh, she said she couldn't decide whether it was a cruise ship or a warship. And she said she felt the Lord say to her, it's both. And she said, there will be times of great battle, but there will also be times of dinner at the captain's table. A mixture of fun and battle at the same time. And I thought, I like that. That's a value. Listen, I am committed to serious fun. No, no, come on. <laughs> you miserable lot. Who wants serious fun? Serious fun. You know, I, 
I love jazz. I love red wine. I love a nice meal. I don't want to have a team meeting in a boring old office. I want to go on a river cruise. I want to. I want to enjoy fly fishing. I want to go and walk the beach. I want to enjoy time with good friends. I want to drink nice coffee. I want to do anything that makes the journey nice. I love the Jewish proverb that says this, a man will be held to account on the day of judgment for every legitimate pleasure he has denied himself. (laughs) I like that. I wish that were in here. (laughs) I mean, it kind of is in Ecclesiastes, sort of. I want fun on the journey because there's enough battles for a lifetime. So let's enjoy the journey and just spite the devil by saying, you know, we're going to have fun. We're going to have serious, serious fun. Are you up for that? That's a value as far as I'm concerned. That's non-negotiable. If you're miserable, please leave. <laughs> right? <laughs> or do something and get happy, you know. of value. We take each other, we take ourselves far too seriously. I mean, God doesn't. (laughs) Really doesn't. Just as, yeah, a couple more things. Leaders willing to pay a price. Now, after talking about fun, you might think, oh, crikey, here we go, back now to the depression. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, you can pay a price and still have fun. Jesus was anointed with joy above his companions. He was not miserable. He was not portrayed like they do in some Cecil B. DeMille film of walking thoughtfully through Galilee, pointing at things. Hmm. I mean, really, that's just not how he was, really. I don't know how he was, but he wasn't like that. Just really wasn't. Well, who'd want to hang out with someone like that? Would you pick him as your best friend? Would you invite him to your birthday party? Really, no. Everyone's sitting there with a the jelly and ice cream and, hmm. <laughs> really, no. You know, he was a friend of sinners. Sinners enjoyed his company. You know, he di- they didn't invite him so that he could teach them great things initially. He did that in the context of a friendship with sinners. Uh, uh, something about him that made them think, you know what, perhaps there is hope in life. We're joy bringers. We should make people feel better when we walk in the room and worse when we leave the room, not the other way round. (laughs) Practice that. Watch the faces when you walk in. Right? If (laughs) someone walks in the room and everyone goes, oh, great. They're a joy bringer. That's good. But seriously, you know, there is, there is a cost to all this. Verse 7, we're going into the hill country of the Amorites. If we want to see thousands of people come to know Christ, well, there's something that comes along with that fruitfulness, and it's called cost. Having a vision and being fruitful has a cost. Success brings a cost. Increase brings pressure. I mean, really, success might seem wonderful on paper, but when suddenly, I don't know, God might give you notoriety or, you know, prominence in your field, it's not a friend. People can start 
tweeting things about you, saying things about you. You get criticized, misunderstood. People say horrible things about you, no foundation whatsoever. And do you know what? You've just got to carry on and try as best as you can to ignore it and still love them and forgive them. There's a cost in that. Every, hands up if you like being liked. Some of you are a bit sort of masochistic, obviously. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. Most of you want to be liked. Well, fruitful leadership won't always make you popular. Just won't. I walked uh, on the south bank of London and just walked past the wonderful statue, the bust thing of Nelson Mandela, and it said underneath, the struggle is my life. I thought, that pretty much sums it up, actually, doesn't it? The struggle is my life. It's not part of my life that I do Monday to Friday and then I have the weekends off you know, to do other things. The struggle is my life. Do you know what um, the price is? Right, this is, this is the takeaway, take the, the, the take home. <clears throat> the price is, the cost is obedience. You know, obedience is huge. Huge. You know, you and I may not be very clever, may not be very gifted, may not be very whatever. We might be, there might be a lot of things about us that might make us not the best placed to do what we're attempting to do. All of that is rendered of little consequence if we are a room full of people who are obedient. Obedience trumps every other quality. Jesus said, I've come to do your will, O God. I delight to do your will. Paul said, I have not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. Whatever God says to you, do it. Do it. Even if when you do it, things get worse. It's much better to go back to God and say, you said, do it. Certainly better than listening to me or one of the teams suggest you do something and it go wrong and then come back to me and say, you said, that ain't going to help you. All I'm going to say is, yeah, I got that wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Then what are you going to do? It's no use whatsoever. But if he says do it, then when it's tough, you say, you wrestle it through in prayer and you say, Lord, you said, you said, you said, I'm just doing what you said. God then has a problem because all you're doing is being obedient. Do you follow that? It's really, really important. It's so simple, but it is important. Yeah, I think, uh, I think I'm done. Just one last thing. Leaders on this journey are travelers, not settlers. Joe, this world is not our home. I get slightly concerned sometimes that we can, in the world we live in, where every problem in the Western world we think can be fixed, even death itself is a slight irritant. Surely the NHS can do something about this. The death levels are far too high. Yeah, 100% actually. (laughs) Why don't the government sort out the rising death 
rates. <laughs> it's, it's almost like we think it's our right <laughs> to have every problem that we face sorted out by something, someone. You know, we, our home is in heaven. We are travelers. Yeah? This isn't our home. We're on our way somewhere that's going to last forever. When the new heavens and the new earth are recreated in all their glory and Jesus reigns completely, every tear, every sigh, every pain, every day, it's all going to go. That's going to be our, that's where we're, that's home. We are, we are not at home. We're on our way home. And even when we, we must be careful we don't have an over-realized eschatology that wants all the kingdom now. I mean, I believe, and I'm pursuing God for signs, wonders, healings, and deliverances, and all that kind of stuff, and all, all the stuff. I, I'm, I'm really going for it. But they are signs that point somewhere. They're not a destination. We don't worship the signs and wonders. We don't, that's not, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but unless anyone has seen him recently, he still died again. You know, it was a temporary thing. And you may be wonderfully healed, and praise God. You know, I love healing because I, I, I have great compassion for anyone who's suffering. I want to eradicate all suffering if it, as far as it depends on me. If I can, I don't mind praying for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. With anyone, any, anything, anyone. I, I, I hate suffering. I hate pain. I hate seeing people in pain. I hate it. I'm angry against I'm angry with it. But it is not a destination because it's still going to come and get us at some point because this is not home home is when Jesus returns and it's all sorted out for good that's not a fairy tale if we're thinking like that we have not understood the gospel this is a temporary our life is a bit like this conference. We're not at home. We're enjoying ourselves. We're being fed by God, but we know we're going somewhere else. And it, in the span of eternity, this two or three day conference is a bit like our life here on earth. The rest of your life is what eternity feels like. It's just, this is nothing in eternity, is it? And somehow I think, particularly in the West, we've got to let our minds be washed again, renewed again by the hope of glory. That, that, that is our home. We are passing through doing as much damage to the enemy's kingdom as we can. But we are travelers with suitcases. We are not settlers building houses. Does that make sense? Because it's so important, that's a, that's a culture, that's a flavor, that's a, a value. Would you stand with me? And perhaps the band would like to come back. I uh, talked for slightly longer than I wanted to, but that's typical. But we've got 10 minutes before you all invade the unsuspecting restaurants of Norwich. So... <clears throat> Um, we'll just have a little chat with Ollie. Yeah, right, we're sorted. Um, yeah, we're just going to sing together. I just want us to just, you know, offer ourselves to the Lord uh, as obedient servants who say, Lord, you know, I'm... Um, 
I'm a leader for this next phase. Uh, that's simply it. Uh, so I'd like us just to sing uh, together. Um, and I'll just pray for us first before we do that. We don't, we, yeah, it's just a moment of sober uh, consecration. Um, so if you feel that you would like to just offer yourself afresh to the Lord to be the kind of leader he is looking for in this next journey, then just simply lift your hands where you are and offer, offer yourself. Offer up your life. And the Lord sees our hearts. So, Holy Spirit, I pray you would mark this moment. We, we don't do it lightly. We don't do it out of any sense of uh, this is kind of just a novel thing. This, this is our life, Lord, really. Uh, you know, he who loses his life will gain it. Uh, just as Jesus, you know, gave his life. So, Lord, we we would dare to perhaps try to line up with him some way and say, Lord, we would dare to lay down perhaps our lives for you and say, Lord, we don't really know what that means. I don't know what that means. I find it slightly scary, Lord, to even say it, but I know that's the way. I know that's the way. And I kind of feel almost, Lord, like I'm wrestling like Jesus did in Gethsemane. Lord saying, is there another way? Is there, can, we, can we find another way, Father? Is there another way? Nevertheless, not my will but yours. Nevertheless. I kind of feel some of us are in that kind of moment. Some of you are going to end up in very pioneering situations, and this is your Gethsemane moment. Really, Some of you are in them right now, and you're wrestling because you think, you know what, we burnt all our bridges, and now it feels very lonely where we are. And you think, Father, is there another way? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. So, Father, give us the grace that you gave to your Son, because we, we are in him. He's our master. He's our Lord. We want to we be obedient servants. We want to know servants above his master. And, Lord, whatever it takes, whatever you ask any of us to do, by the grace of God, please help us to say yes to you. By the grace of God. I wouldn't dare say, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. But I will say, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, if you give me grace, I'm willing to give it my best shot. Lord, uh, you know that we're weak, we're frail, we're vulnerable. We're, I, I'm afraid, actually, Lord, really, of what's ahead. Slightly nervous. Slightly nervous. But I think that's right to be like that, Lord. I think, I think if I wasn't nervous, I wouldn't really understand what's ahead. And I pray that somehow this fear of the Lord, this kind of holy, holy sacrifice will just permeate us right now in these moments as we sing and respond to you. Thank you, Lord. Let's sing together.